0: Today's scripture reading is Luke chapter 9 verses 37 through 43. On the next day when they had come down from the mountain a great crowd met him and behold a man from the crowd cried out teacher I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child and behold a spirit seizes him and suddenly he cries out it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his word.
1: How y'all doing? All right, good right. I'm glad y'all ready to talk back to a brother this morning. I'm grateful for that. It's so good to be with you guys. I feel like it's been too long. Some of you may not know, but I'm a member of this church. Um, (laughs) Y'all just just loaned me to Anacostia River Church, but this feels like home every time I'm here uh, with you all, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And um, Pastor Carter is so generous in his introduction. I feel like he was too generous. I got to correct at least one thing. Uh, it was me sitting at his feet learning and, and gathering information uh, and, and being wizened by him. I, it's a great honor to, to open God's word with you uh, this morning. I, it's an honor for me because um, for me, this is one of the most trusted pulpits in this country. Amen. Amen, Amen indeed. <laughs> the most trusted pulpits in this country. Uh, I, don't, I don't have any hesitation when people move from D.C. to Atlanta, I don't know why they do that, but when people move from D.C. to Atlanta, I said, East Point, that's where you go. You go check out Tony Carter and his sidekick, Phil, and uh, all, all the rest of the brothers at East Point, and now I'd have met Brother Bob. I'd say, I'd say, there's gonna be a distinguished gray-haired gentleman down there. You go hang out with Brother Bob, too, man. And uh, what a treat it was to be with the men in the, in the men's fellowship. Um, sisters, brothers, I, I trust you know this already, but there's a, the Lord's done a sweet work here in East Point. A really sweet work. The fellowship was warm, it's joyful, it's a lot of laughter up to about 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> a lot of laughter. Some of us too old to laugh that long anymore. We, we got to go on to bed, but the brothers was at it. And there's this brother here, that, uh, I mean, you should give God praise for the whole men's committee. They did a fantastic job. Uh, the sisters have so sufficiently shamed the men with how beautiful their retreats are. <laughs> the brothers have stepped it up, and it was, it was, it was nice. And um, you should give thanks to the whole committee for doing a fantastic job <laughs> there. And I especially want to thank a brother of unusual giftedness and spirituality, uh, it comes to, you see it, in fact, you can taste it. My brother Jojo on them ribs. <laughs> <laughs> A fantastic job, brother, with that brisket. That's going to be brisket in heaven, I assure you. If y'all don't like brisket, I ain't sure you're going. Uh, <laughs> but we should give our attention to God's word this morning. Well, he speaks to us in his word, and our sister has read the scripture so beautifully for us this morning. And I just want to sort of drop down into that text first by reminding you of context that you've already heard. Luke chapter 9 is a glorious passage. It's filled with some of the most glorious scenes in the Gospels. Look there in verses 1 to 6, Jesus sends his disciples out on a training mission, sends them out two by two, preach the gospel and learn something in the midst of the ministry. That moves then to the feeding of the 5,000 in verses 10 to 17, that, that wonderful miracle we hear so much about from the time we are in Sunday school on into adulthood. Then we get Peter's confession, verses 18 to 20. Peter finally opened his mouth and said something right. And Jesus took the credit from him. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. The first time in the Gospels that the disciples actually got it right that he is the Christ and immediately verses 21 to 27 Jesus begins to teach about his cross he's going to suffer and die be buried three days and raised again and then as we heard last week from pastor Carter verses 28 to 36 Jesus invites three of the disciples Peter James and John up on a mount that gets renamed the mount of transfiguration they see him in his glory so our text opens, you'll see there, the first verse of our text, on the next day, the day following the transfiguration. The, the Lord, Peter, James, and John, they come down off of the Mount of Transfiguration, and now they come down to the plains. They come down into the plains, and there they, they regather with the nine disciples who weren't invited to the party. And they gather there, not only with those nine disciples, but they come to realize right away that the experience on the mountain was different than the experience in the plains. Experience on the mountain had been one of seeing the glory of Christ as he was transformed, transfigured into that very glory. But on the plains, the other disciples had had a harder time. They had, in some sense, failed to see God's glory, failed to show God's glory in their own Ministries, And when Jesus comes off the mount into the plain, there's going to be some encounters in this text. First question I want us to ask this morning, if you're taking notes, is who encountered Jesus? Who encountered Jesus in our text? And the second thing I want us to notice is who was the Jesus they encountered? Who was the Jesus they encountered? And may the Lord give us grace to see Jesus as he is. Well, let's start with who encountered Jesus. Again, as the, as the Lord descended from the mountain with Peter and James and John in tow, they come down and they encounter, the text tells us, a crowd. In fact, there are going to be sort of four characters in this crowd that they're going to interact with in this text. There's the crowd itself, a faceless, nameless throng of people. Then there's a man who also is named, who's in the crowd, who's come to Jesus on behalf of his son. So they're going to encounter, number two, a man and his son. Third, they're going to have to interact with a demon who's possessed the man's son. And then fourth and finally, there are those nine disciples there, indeed all the disciples, who are also having an encounter with Jesus. Let's start with the man and his son, verses 38 to 40. Again, the man is just one man in the crowd. He's among many uh, who are faceless and nameless. He's an anonymous man. He's an ordinary man until he speaks. Apparently, the crowd had thronged to Jesus, but the crowd doesn't know what it wants. Crowds never do. What sets the man apart is his plea for help. He begs Jesus. He he had begged the nine disciples earlier, but they had been unable to help him. Now he escalates his begging on behalf of his son. Y'all know the song, Ain't Too Proud to Beg. (laughs) Some of us ought to know that when we're in Jesus' presence. Don't be too proud to beg. The man has a whole speech prepared in his heart. He says in verses 38 through 40, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. That just feels shady, don't it? Notice three things. Three things. This is the man's only child. We can sense the the desperation and the fear of loss. He'd do just about anything for this one son. Now, son in ancient Israel was a a great treasure. And only one son, or an only son, was not only a, a great treasure, but also, in some sense, an only hope. Without this son, this Israelite this man's name and legacy would disappear from the earth. He'd have no one to leave his inheritance to, no one to carry on his family name. In calling him my only son, the man in the crowd basically admits his son is his, his real treasure in life. There's a sense of desperation in that detail, for he is my only son. My sister, my oldest sister, we call her Blossom. Y'all can call her that too if you meet her. She is um, about 15 years older than me. And so when I was a little boy, I was often confused as her son. People thought I was her son. And she just rode along with it. And she just had a heart to have a child of her own. When her and her husband got married, they started trying and trying and trying. And for years, they were unable to have a son or child, daughter. And finally, in God's great mercy, after trying all the things they tried, they had a son, which they named P.J., Pepper Jr. Their daddy's name was Pepper, his nickname. And she loved that boy. She loved that boy with all the love that could be amassed after years of trying. She loved that boy with all the hope that could be crammed into a phrase like, my only son. She loved that boy to the point of probably ruining that boy. And she'd do everything, anything for that child. That's who comes to Jesus on this day. Somebody who has probably crammed all their hopes, all their dreams, all their aspirations, all their designs for the future, all of their plans, all their wealth, all of, all of everything they had imagined into this one son who is afflicted by a demon. He's coming to Jesus to beg, help my boy, take a look at him. He's the only one I got. Everything seems to be riding on this. And here's one of the things I love about Jesus. Jesus Jesus, I don't know if you notice this reading through the Gospels, but Jesus seems to have a tender heart for parents with only one child. Let me tell you what I mean. In, in, Luke, in Luke chapter 7, verse 12, he's outside the town of Nain, and he meets a poor widow whose only son has died. And he raises that boy to life. In Capernaum, now, Jesus wanted... He ran into a ruler of the synagogue. We're in Luke chapter 8 now, around verse 42. He runs into a a, a synagogue ruler who has a, a daughter, and he grants her life. And now we come to this grievously ill child, a man with only one son. And I think the Lord's heart is moved with compassion and understanding. For he's an only son, an only begotten son, whose father is about to give him up for the world. I think there's something unique in this counter, something wonderful, something beautiful in this encounter between this man and his de- desperation and this Jesus, who knows all about our sorrows, who's a perfect high priest, who's been tempted in every way as we are without sin, so that he could sympathize with us. That's the first encounter. That's the first thing we learn about this man and his son. The, the second thing was obvious there. The, the son is oppressed by a demon. We'll come back to that in a moment. And thirdly, again, the man has begged his disciples, verse 40, but the disciples were unable to help. Imagine how hard it would have been to watch your only child go through this every day. Some of us don't have to imagine. We've been in the pediatric oncology ward with children every day fighting childhood leukemia or some other form of cancer. Some of us don't have to imagine. We, have, we know what it's like to raise a child with some kind of development challenge, or physical or, or mental, or some other debilitating disease. This dad would have been tortured by his powerlessness, his inability to help the one he prizes most. Now he's trying to get help from others, but he, he comes up empty with the non disciples. And so he's coming to Jesus with perhaps a, a, a mixture of disappointment and desperation. That's the first encounter I want to bring to your attention. Notice the second encounter, it's with the demon. Sometimes the gospel writers tell us what demons say in, in dramatic scenes when they encounter Jesus. This time, Luke leaves the demon silent just as well. He wouldn't do anything but lie anyway. <laughs> we have no doubt about this demon's nature, though. We see his maliciousness in the fact that he would attack a child. Satan ain't got no manners. He ain't got no rules. He ain't got nothing he would obey that's decent. The demon revealed its malicious nature in the fact that it it attacks the child and the father says he hardly leaves him alone, won't give the child a break. It reveals its nature in how violently it tortured this boy. Notice the verbs that the father uses. It seizes him, convulses him, shatters him, will hardly leave him alone. This is no epileptic fit that unbelieving Bible commentators want to imagine. This is demonic oppression. The demon's attacks are real, and they're not just in the past. Notice, even in the presence of the Lord, the demon attacks again. Verse 42 in the first part there. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. I love the way one commentator puts it. He says, Satan never gives up, even in the presence of the Lord. Even when he sees that he is defeated and there is no hope for him to succeed in his evil plans, he still insists on having one final fling. Satan and his demons are a lot like a defeated rebel army holding holding up and hiding in abandoned places or jungle areas. They have lost the war, but that defeated army tries to hang on to the last shreds of territory by guerrilla tactics and intimidation. The demon is all but defeated and cast out, but he wants to hold on to this boy as long as he can. There's a lesson in this for us. This is why the Bible tells us not to give him a toehold. Don't give him no quarter. For every inch he grinds, he gains, he will fight to maintain. Stand against him. Resist him so that he flees. Never think Satan will just let up on you or take it easy because he's defeated. He won't. He's too proud and too stubborn to let go. His hold must be broken and God's people must stand in the victory that Jesus provides. So here we see this picture of a defeated enemy that that won't stop, who's encountered now a superior power in Jesus Christ. We should consider the disciples too. They are having an encounter here with Jesus. The nine disciples on the plane we've already seen, they they could not cast out the demon. The, The disciples' inability may be understandable until we We read a text like Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Remember how this chapter starts. There the Bible says, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, it seems like this is something they should have been able to do. Power means they had the ability. Authority means they had the right. Right? They had both the ability and the right to cast out demons, at least they had been commissioned to do so as part of their training. And here, one wishes the disciples heard what commanding military officers often tell newly enlisted soldiers. They often remind them to remember your training. When the bullets start flying, remember your training. When stuff gets thick now, remember your training. Don't abandon your training. There's a reason we've trained you this way, so that when things get hot, you still cool. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened? Why did they fail? Well, we could go to the other gospel writers in the synoptics, Matthew and Mark, who help us to see this picture too. They give us a a little bit more detail about this same scene. So in Matthew chapter 17, verses 19 and 20, this is what Matthew tells us. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Verse 20, Jesus said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. It's because of their little faith. And, and I love that text, verse 20, because it keeps us from becoming self-righteous about the disciple. Because Jesus says something like, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could move this mountain. And we like, Oh, he, that, he don't mean that. <laughs> Our own little faith starts speaking before we finish the verse, don't it? It's Because of their little faith. Mark adds another t- detail. Mark chapter 9, verses 28 and 29 says, And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? Verse 29, And he said, Jesus said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Last week, Pastor Pastor Carter exhorted us, didn't he, to prayer rather than falling asleep. Peter, James, and John had fallen asleep on the Mount of Transfiguration instead of praying. And Down in the valley, the other disciples were apparently trying to do God's work without prayer. Beloved, prayerlessness is functional atheism. To attempt to do God's work without having a word with God is to attempt the supernatural in natural strength. That ain't going to work. It ain't going to work. I don't know what you think of Jesus' first disciples here, of his apostles. I think they're a lovable but clueless bunch. And I think we just like them. In this text, we see their weakness apart from Jesus. They had tried, I think sincerely, but they were unable to cast out the demon. They were trainees, but they were failing in their training. I love the apostles probably because, again, I see so much of myself in them. I I read about their failures, and I'm aware of how often I failed in ministry and in life. I see their powerlessness to deliver this boy from demonic oppression, and, and in that I see my own powerlessness to deliver people from their sin from their addictions of various sorts, from terrible relationships they shouldn't be in, from sickness and disease. I read about these Jesus followers, and I know we ain't no different. Maybe this scene was a a real-life parable, a parable come to life in this encounter between the disciples and Jesus. You remember Jesus says, In John's gospel, John chapter 15, I believe it is around verses 4 and 5, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. See how he makes it plain because we're clueless? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, finish it for me, can do nothing. Very literally, while Jesus was away on the Mount of transfiguration. And these disciples were apart from him in the plain, failing to pray, failing to abide in Jesus. They could not bear fruit of casting out this demon. Beloved, let's just apply this this way. It's incredibly important that we abide or remain in Jesus and he abides in us. It's imperative that we branches suck the sap of life from the vine himself, who is Jesus Christ. If we don't, we have no life and no fruit. But if we do, if we do abide, we can't do anything but bear fruit. And our fruit, Jesus says, will last. Again, Pastor Carter exhorted us last week so beautifully to pray. How's your prayer life been over the last week? What use and profit have you put last week's word to? We have not been, have we, people who hear the word of God and walk away and forget what we heard. We're not those men and women who look in the mirror and turn away and forget the reflection, are we? What use have you put last week's word to? Or the week before? Or the week before? Or this morning's word to? We ought to abide in Christ by abiding in prayer and abiding in his word. The the disciples were discovering that their lives had no power apart from Jesus, and, beloved, neither do ours. The Christian life is not magic and hocus-pocus. The Christian life is union with Christ, with his overflowing life coming into ours. And bearing fruit, abide in him, dwell with him, for he dwells in us and abides with us. Now, we ought to consider the crowd. Notice the reactions of the crowd. Now, crowds ought to be noticed but not followed. They start coming out to meet Jesus. Verse 37, again, does not tell us why. But we know at least one thing about crowds, don't we? Crowds love a show. That's usually why they get together, right? Crowds love a show. They want to be entertained. Crowds want their curiosity peaked and then slaked. Crowds, you know, crowds want their fancies tickled. This is why, beloved, every crowd is not a church. It's easier to gather a crowd than it is to gather a church. At each point, one of the things I pray the Lord would always protect you from is jealousy of the bigger church. Jealousy of the bigger crowd. For there are churches around here the size of stadiums that don't know Jesus, that don't hear Jesus, don't hear him proclaim, line upon line, precept upon precept. Don't be taken in by the crowds. So after Jesus cast out the demon, it seems the crowd was satisfied by the show. They had come to see something spectacular, and indeed they had. But they didn't want any more than that. They didn't want any more than to see the show. They didn't want the main actor in the show. They didn't want Jesus himself. Verse 43 says, all were astonished at the majesty of God. The whole crowd knew they had seen something of the glory and the power and the might and the wonder of God himself. They're like those ancient Egyptian magicians serving Pharaoh when Moses did miracles. They said, this is the finger of God. But they then didn't worship God. Notice what the crowd did. They went away. They disappeared. They vanished from the scene. We don't know nothing else about them. Except that for one brief moment, lightning struck them. For one brief moment, they were startled at how great God is. For one brief moment, they were astonished, amazed. They said, man, you see that? I ain't never seen nothing like that. And then it was over. Here's what happens with every crowd. They go away. They saw something. That is, not every day. And all they could muster was, notice, astonishment, not faith. Even though Jesus had rebuked them all for their lack of faith. Notice the crowds. I mean, he gave him the answer to the test. You need to believe. Then he, then he worked out the theorem in the test. He put it on the whiteboard. Here's how you solve the theorem. And they still didn't exercise faith or even help, ask for help with their faithlessness. Notice the crowds, but don't follow the crowds. Crowds are fickle and weak, and they never point us to faith. This morning in this room, I'm sure there's some high school teenagers, and there are some folks who are about to go off to college. I speak on the authority of someone who has lived through the period you're going into. The crowds will be attractive. Oh, beloved, my, my friend who's in high school, my friend who's in middle school, my, my friend who's headed off to college, don't follow the crowd. Don't follow the crowd. Don't, don't, don't be lured by the temptation and the false promise of popularity. You know how long popularity lasts? About a year after you get out of school. Then the bills come. <laughs> and you can't pay bills with popularity. Right? You're going to need some character. You're going to have, have to have made some good decisions. You're going to need a job at least. <laughs> so I'm telling you what I know. I'm telling what I think the Lord would have you to know. Right? That we can follow the crowds or we can follow Him. And here's the thing, beloved if you follow Him, you're always in the majority. Right? You plus Jesus is greater than any crowd you'll ever encounter. So I just encourage you. You're going to feel the temptation. You're going to want to be popular. You're going to want to be liked. You're going to want to be with those folks who seem to be in the know, who seem to be the in crowd. They're going to go away. They're going to look astonishing and maybe be astonished. But that, that's not the same thing as pleasing God and having faith in him. Choose Christ. Follow him. You will at times be following him alone, but you won't be alone, for he promised he would never leave you nor forsake you. That's how different he is from the crowds. And think of Jesus in the Gospels. How often in the Gospels Jesus himself avoided the crowds, snuck out to lonely places, desolate places, so he could pray to his Father. And draw strength from his own relationship with God. Follow that example. In middle school, in high school, in college, wherever it seems important that you be liked and be approved of by others, hear Jesus say to you: See Jesus' example of avoiding the crowds and going to God and enjoying Him. Now, these are the four encounters that we see in this text. Now we need to ask the question, who is the Jesus that they encountered? And I want to suggest to you five things from this text real briefly. Number one, the Jesus they encountered is the Jesus who will pick you out of a crowd. I love that this, this desperate man gets the Lord's attention. I love that the Lord would not be impressed with the masses, but would be moved with compassion for the individual who calls on him. I'm glad there's no call center in heaven. I've seen the little TikToks and the Instagram reels of people pretending they called to heaven and they got somebody on the phone. I'm glad everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be heard. Everybody got Jesus on the main line. And he's the kind of God now who listens to us, even when we are the nameless people in the crowd. Don't let Satan tempt you to think that God has too much to do to listen to you. Don't let the enemy convince you that you are insignificant to God. You ain't got no great name, and therefore, your problems are meaningless. Those lies come with a hiss. So lies from the pit of hell, beloved. The Jesus we meet in the plains is the Jesus who will pick you out of the crowd. And and notice, he's the Jesus who will respond to your need. That's the second thing we see. Sometimes we have to wait on the Lord, beloved. And waiting can become waiting. waiting. Somebody said it was wait that broke the wagon down. While we wait, we can be tempted to think that God will not supply our need, that God will not answer Anybody ever think their prayers are not answered, even heard? But Jesus responds to our needs. He answers this man's cry for his only son. The text says in verse 42, notice it there, he healed the boy and gave him back to his father. That second part is so sweet. There's so much compassion in that line, and gave him back to his father. How often this father must have wanted to hold his son, but that demon was contorting him and twisting him and convulsing him and had him foaming at the mouth. How how often this father must have wanted to just place his hand on his boy's head or his boy's shoulder, a a gentle indication that I'm proud of you and I, I love you. How often must this father have missed gathering for worship in Israel because his son was unclean? And because he was unclean. How often had touching the boy made the father isolated from the rest of the community? But here now, Jesus responds to their need and rehumanizes their relationship by touching, a gentle touch, a holding of one another. Oh, he makes real again, what we all need, don't we? Don't we all? We're made for human touch. We're made for human community, Holy touch. now. We all know the studies of babies born uh, prematurely and left in the, the NICU, how babies who don't have someone to touch them and hold them don't do as well as babies who do. And so that ministry of volunteering at hospitals just to go rock the babies, it right, helps those babies to develop and flourish as the human beings made in God's image that they, are, that they really are. And, and here again, he is causing this father and son to flourish again, meeting their need for intimacy and contact, for holding each other and being with each other because Jesus saw their need and didn't blink, moved toward it provided it, answered. Oh yeah, this father had to wait. He had to work his way through disciples who couldn't help. He had to live for some years with his son who was struggling, but but there Jesus was, in his own perfect time, healing the boy and returning him to his father. Oh beloved, this is the Jesus who will... Respond to your need. Number three, who did they encounter in Jesus? Well, they encountered a Jesus who has authority to cast out demons. We see that there in verse 42. We already made mention of it a couple times. We don't have to belabor this because we don't want to give demons any more airtime than we have to. But, But notice, notice, notice that in his conflict with demons, it's not even a conflict. It doesn't rise to that. It's not like, beloved, there's some kind of dualism in the universe where you got a good God and you got an evil force and they are wrestling it out to see who wins. No, 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 that's not how that happens. Uh, that, that's Marvel. <laughs> that's, that would be DC Comics if they could tell a good story. <laughs> no, no, no. That ain't how that happened, beloved. Don't you know that Jesus ain't got no rivals. Don't you know that in the, in the universe there is no goat conversation? <laughs> ain't nobody in the barbershop debating who's the greatest of all time. Not, not in the universe. The whole universe staggers at the glory and the wonder and the power and the wisdom of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. <laughs> Demons tremble. Angels fall down. The elders cast off their crown. The sun is too embarrassed to shine. There is no sun in that place because the glory of the lamb and the glory of the father will fill that place. Ain't no rivals, ain't no equals, ain't no arm wrestling match. Jesus looked at the boy and said, come out of it. (laughs) And just like your mama and your daddy telling you, come on in this house. (laughs) Y'all move right away. Oh, they they met Jesus who has authority, beloved, the power and the right to rule over demons in his earthly incarnation. How much more does he have power and right? Does he have authority to rule the creation in his heavenly session, sitting at the right hand of the Father? I don't know who these people be talking about when they be talking about a powerless Jesus. My God. I, I, don't, I hadn't met that Jesus. <laughs> know who that Jesus is. Right. That must be the Jesus of the Muslims or something. Right. It ain't the Jesus of the Bible. I don't, I, don't, I don't know who that Jesus is that's powerless. I had the privilege of sitting with a person the other day and they were humbly, in some ways humbly, confessing their sin, but also in other ways kind of struggling with the, the deeper sin of unbelief. Expressing to me that they didn't think that God would deliver them from this thing that they've been struggling with for so many years. I said, stop it, man. God, too strong. God, too strong. Don't you know God is too strong for you to be sitting over there talking about, he can't help me with this. He can't deliver me with this. I done had this so long. God must not be able to do anything with it. Stop it, man. You done forgot who Jesus is. You done forgot who God is. Ain't nothing too hard for God. Ain't nothing impossible for God. It's a God who called things into being before they existed. Have you thought about that? Things that did not exist obeyed God and became? Let me say it again. Have you thought about that? (laughs) Things that did not exist obeyed God and became. God too strong. God, too strong. I don't know what you're needing from him this morning. And I don't know how hard it feels from a human perspective. And I don't know if you're trying to do divine things in human strength. But I do know this. God, too strong. All power in his hands. This is the Jesus they meet in the plains. And this is the only real Jesus there is. One more thing. Two more things. Uh, the Jesus they met. Who did they meet? They met the Jesus who demands faith in himself. You see that there in verse 41? He gives them that rebuke. It's a rebuke that he's repeated a number of times in the Gospels, and, and here's another occasion to, to use it. He rebukes them for their, their unbelief. He rebukes them as a, a wicked generation, a, a, a period of people, a, a group of people who are defined by their, their unbelief. Every once in a while, it seems like the Lord and his humanity get a little tired of us, Pastor Carter. (laughs) Ain't no wonder every once in a while, we pastors get tired of the sheep, too. (laughs) And every once in a while, you sheep get tired of the pastor. (laughs) Even Jesus and his humanity could offer a holy and a strong rebuke. Because the most rational thing in the world, beloved, the most rational thing in the world is that we should believe in Jesus. I know there are people out there who are like, that's blind faith. They're the ones blind. Remember what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, He's describing the creation. He says that the creation declares the glory of God. The very things we look at, the trees and the birds, the, the green grass, the blue skies, and all of that is, is shouting day after day in every language the glories and the wonders of God. The most rational thing in the world is to look and see that there is a world and to conclude it didn't come from nowhere. Somebody made it. And the most rational thing in the world is to believe in Jesus who, as we see him in the Gospels, demonstrates that he is God's own son, that he is God the son. He forgives sins, he he raises the dead, he heals the sick. He he speaks to the wind and the wind obeys, He, he walks on water. Who could do that but God? And I know, I know, I know, I know. The unbeliever says in his heart, this is the stories of men. But what men lie like this and die for it? You realize how radical it is that these men from the cradle who had heard the, the Hebrew Shema, Hero O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one, had been raised from cradle into adulthood as Jewish men celebrating the Sabbath, celebrating the law, keeping kosher, all the things. How radical and remarkable it is that in one day they left all of that and began a new religion. Not just one, not just two, for one or two can be in cahoots, but 120. What happened? They saw the resurrected Christ. They saw him die. They saw him bleed. They saw and heard him cry out. They saw him buried in the tomb, and then they saw the tomb empty, and then they saw him They saw him pass through doors. They saw him say, put your hand here in my wound. They saw him cooking fish. They saw him in his glory. It's the most rational thing in the world. To believe in him. And we sit in a room like this with a bunch of people who maybe don't have a whole lot in common except that we all believe in Jesus. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I just, I won't say this lovingly, but I want to say it. I have to put too fine a point on it. But do you know how arrogant you would have to be to deny the experience of everybody in this room who believes in Jesus? who has walked with and experienced Jesus because he is alive, you know what kind of hubris it takes to say all of y'all are wrong and I am right? To say that not only for everybody in this room, but now for Christians in every land for 2,000 years. It's often that people who aren't Christians look at us Christians and say, y'all are so proud to think that Jesus is the only way. Well, it's not pride if he is. It's good news if he is. See, we we don't struggle with the idea that he is the only way. We're just glad there is a way. And he's the only one who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. So we, we would implore you to look at Jesus, to consider him, to consider how rational it is to believe that God exists, even just by looking at the creation. You didn't make yourself. And then to consider this Jesus presents himself in the Gospels as one who must be believed in because he is the Son of God. Last thing, and then we're done. Who was the Jesus they encountered? They they encountered the Jesus who died for our sins. You see there in verses 44 and 45, he begins to tell them again about his death and his crucifixion. He had told them that just a little bit earlier, back around verse 21 or so, I believe. He just, he just told them that this was going to happen. They didn't have categories for it. They're, they're struggling to understand it. The Bible tells us that they didn't get it until after the resurrection. They're walking with Jesus, hearing this teaching, and, and kind of wondering, what does he mean by it? And, and then having debates about, well, who's going to be first in the kingdom once he's gone? They didn't get it at all until after the resurrection. And this Jesus they encountered in the plains over 2,000 years ago is alive, sitting at the Father's right hand. That's right. If no nobody else praising but you, brother, go ahead and praise him. <laughs> sitting at the Father's right hand. He has died, yes, for the sins of the world. He suffered the Father's punishment for us. And he was in a tomb, yes, for three days. But on the third day, because he was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice, the Father raised him from the grave to new and glorious and eternal life. He appeared to his disciples one at a time, 12 at a time, 500 at a time. And he changed the world in his resurrection. And he has promised that everyone who puts their faith in him, that everyone who trusts in him to, to have uh, paid the penalty for their sins and trusts in him for eternal life, and everyone who trusts in him by following him as their Lord, that he has promised that they too shall live eternally in the Father's love. Righteous before God. Kept by God. For all of time in a kingdom and a world where there is no more sick little boys and desperate dads, in a kingdom and a world where there are no more grieving mothers, in a kingdom and a world where there is no sickness and no death, where death itself is dead. He's promised all of that to those who believe in him, who trust in him, and who follow him by faith. That could be you this morning if, that, if that's not you up until this moment. Right now, in this moment you can call upon the name of the Lord. You can say, Lord, I'm in this crowd nameless and faceless, just like this man in this text. But I see that you hear me. You hear people when they call upon you. And I, I see that you answer their needs. And, and my biggest need right now is the forgiveness of my sins and reconciliation with you. For in my sin, I have gone my own way. I have rebelled against you, but you have promised that you would bring me home if I turn to you in faith. And so grant me the gift of faith. Grant me the grace of repentance. You can call upon the name of the Lord in that way or any way you want to. Some of the best prayers in the Bible are as simple as, Lord, help my unbelief and have mercy on me, Lord a prayer that he delights to answer. If that's you this morning and you're not a Christian, I pray that you would do that. You would put your hope in the Lord. And If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, I pray that we would remember the Jesus we have encountered, who he really is. And we would worship him for who he really is. That as we sang a moment ago, we would trust him for who he really is. That we not be shaken by this world, we not be shaken um, by the threats and the prowlings of a defeated devil but we would be rooted and established and built up in the love of God our Savior, in faith in Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray we would keep encountering Jesus, this Jesus. Delight to know him. Delight to be with him. Delight to abide in him. For the great mystery is he has delighted to know us and to abide in in us. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you as a people with no great name, anonymous in the crowds of humanity. We come to you as a people with need, various needs, some small, some great, but you have promised that you would supply our needs. And we see, O oh Lord, how you take note of those who call upon you. And so we do now. We, we call upon your name. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would abide with us, abide in us, and that you would give us grace to abide in you, to abide in prayer, to abide in the reading of your word, the hearing and the preaching of your word, to abide in you in song, that you would inhabit our praises. We pray that you would give us more of yourself, Lord, that you would allow us to sense more of your nearness, to sense more of your greatness, to sense and to enjoy more of your love, that we would press through the crowd and press through the distraction until we can press into you. And there we pray, satisfy us with your glory. Let us behold more of your greatness, and be filled, and let us yearn for yet more of your greatness, and be filled, and over and over and over give us yearning, and fill us with yourself, we pray, in Jesus' name.